Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim, not only because we have a great interview coming up, but because I'm looking at you right now and I'm seeing that you're probably doing as good as I'm doing. So yeah, tell us, how are you? (laughs) I am doing great, Lance. I'm excited to speak with our guest today. Her name is Catherine Townsend. You can find out more information at her website. It's lovedetective.com, and she has that social media handle on, I think, most of uh, most social media, Twitter and Instagram as well. She's an interesting person, Lance. We met her recently at CrimeCon. She is a podcaster. She does the Hell and Gone podcast, and she's also got a new podcast called Red Collar Diaries. Tim, you mentioned that she's a podcaster. She's also a writer and a licensed private investigator, which really helps as she's creating her content for these shows. And I don't want it to go unmentioned. We're joined by her dog, Winston, as well, who is a wonderful little chihuahua and really contributes to the conversation in uh, wonderful ways. He is a delightful little chihuahua, and uh, that was nice to meet him at CrimeCon as well. And uh, and Catherine's shows are great. Make sure to check out Hell and Gone. Season 4, they discussed the Abby Stebic murder, and uh, that is a fascinating deep dive. And Catherine is back with this new podcast called Blood Money. And this show recently underwent a title change. So when you search for it, make sure to search for Blood Money. And there are links in the show notes to all of this. Feel free to swing over to our website, crawlspace-media.com, and check out all the shows that we represent there. And we are also partnered with a wonderful company called Glassbox Media. So swing over to glassboxmedia.com to check out everything that's going on with them. Okay, everybody, we're going to break for a commercial here, and we'll be right back with Catherine Townsend. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become senwa saga hellblade 2 play it now with game pass we are being joined now by katherine townsend how are you today i'm great i'm really excited to be here thank you uh, you missed uh, someone really important in that introduction. We're being joined now by Winston and Catherine. I know why you really want to do this interview. Come on, you really want to, you really want to talk to Winston. It's the story of my life, so I completely understand. I know that he doesn't want to be woken up right now, but if you could just pop him Let's up real quick. Out. Come on, Winston. Everybody, you probably everyone wants to see you. Oh. I should have put on his Hawaiian shirt. I'm really sorry. We were just. Hey, interview is still young. This is Winston Churchill. Uh, he is a rescue chihuahua, but he's also a professional investigator. Um, a lot of people don't know this about Winston, but not only has he made a cameo in all of my podcasts, um, he's kind of an integral character because there are a lot of times when I'll go on an interview and I'll be interviewing someone kind of difficult or maybe um, it's the subject might be a little difficult. 
and they will just warm right up once they say Winston. And not only that, you can go anywhere. If you have a dog on a leash, you can go anywhere and no one will ask any questions. So he's a pro. He serves a he serves numerous purposes. He's a uh, he's the the Swiss Army knife for uh, a licensed <laughs> private investigator, uh, investigative journalist like yourself. And we ended up meeting him and you at CrimeCon Las Vegas. How did uh, you and Winston uh, enjoy? Did you enjoy CrimeCon? What did you think of it? I loved Crime. I love CrimeCon. Uh, it really gives me a chance. I'm sure you guys know this job can be very isolating. And when you spend a lot of time in a closet or out on a location somewhere weird, it really means everything to meet people who either are, you know, families who have victims out there or who are other true crime podcasters and just people who listen. It really means so much to hear people say that they listen and they enjoy it. It's, it keeps me going. Yeah, I agree. It's such a wonderful uh, part of CrimeCon for uh, for us creators. You know, it's uh, it's actually really inspiring. It is. And of course, Winston has fun every year. He's been going, is this his third year or second year? I can't remember, but um, he just loves he just loves going with me and not being left behind. So he's <laughs> he's always a star. He's like a CrimeCon pro now. He's going to be setting yeah. up your table next year. <laughs> you know, it's bad when everyone doesn't remember people don't remember your name but they remember Winston's and everyone asks about him so I think next year I'm gonna have a little booth on top of my booth with Winston on it <laughs> yes like a little table yeah like, like a table on the table yeah like right. a little table, a little on the table. table. that's amazing yep <laughs> yeah. right he's so calm he's sitting he's so calm, calm with you yeah <laughs> he is yeah he's uh as long as you don't leave him at home alone he doesn't like that but uh he likes to, he likes to go with, he's, he's kind of a, he's definitely a night dog too. I don't know if anyone out there has a dog that, uh, he, he does not like to get up early for walks. If you try to wake him up too early, he will pull the blanket over his head and give me that look like, <laughs> no, hell no, I'm not doing that. So, oh yeah, yeah. Can he's relate. the best. He's been everywhere though. He's been to London, Japan. He's been to Paris. He's, he's been everywhere. He's like the perfect dog for someone with your lifestyle where you need to be everywhere. You need he to. Does. Well, like I said, he's a professional. He can yeah. he can talk to anybody, you know. So it's part of the jobs being a chameleon, and he he can be he can fit in anywhere. So it's kind of perfect. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thanks for joining us, Winston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, Catherine, tell us what it is that you do. Oh my gosh. Well, so what I do, I'm an investigative journalist. Um, I've been a journalist for a long time. Uh, long story short, I originally started working for New York Magazine. That was my first job. And I did like the celebrity gossip column back in the time when it was still sort of thought of as a cocktail party, nice job before the kind of TMZ people jumping out of the bushes stage of journalism. So I would go to cocktail parties and what I had to do was talk to people and I would have to interrupt their conversations a lot, find a way, way to get a quote, um, really interview people from all walks of life. Then I moved to London and I wrote a dating column for a newspaper. It was a feature writer. Um, loved it. So much fun. Um, and then after that, I really wanted to transition into more investigative journalism. So that's when I got the PI license, which took three years and 6,000 hours um, in California where I was living at the time. And um, even though I don't do PI work anymore, I haven't had private clients in a long time. It's really helped with the journalism side. And um, it's also helped me learn how to deal with sort of like FBI people, people who work in law enforcement, giving me access to databases, all kinds of things. So these days, um, I'm, I'm an investigative journalist and the podcasts have become full time. 
Um, so I have two podcasts. One is called Hell and Gone, obviously, and it's um, it's an investigative series where we do um, a different cold case each season. We spend eight episodes really digging into it. It's a real-time murder investigation. And then the new one that I'm about to launch is called Red Collar Diaries, and it's going to be every week we're going to recap a different case. Um, it's white-collar criminals who kill, which I think a lot of people don't know a lot about, so I'm very excited. Okay, very good. Very it's good. impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> you also, you've written books. Yes, I have. I've written uh, two books. One's called Sleeping Around, one is called Sleeping Around, and the other one's called Breaking the Rules. Now, I want to warn people, if they go out and buy these, I'm very proud of them. Remember, they were written at a very different time in my life when I was having a good time, single girl, living in London. They are very racy. I've had more than one friend <laughs> sort of say... You know, I read your book the other day and I was a little shocked. I'm like, it's a sexual memoir. I mean, I don't know what you were expecting, but, you know, I, I don't it's it's blunt. It's like the it's like everything else I do. It's pretty blunt. Um, and I have a new book coming out next year called How to Survive a Murder Investigation. And that's going to be a true crime memoir, sort of a combination of the cases I've worked on, but also the things that I've learned from them. Very cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, the reason I brought that up is just to show the multifaceted life that you have uh, committed to. Yeah. It's all about sex and murder in one way or another. <laughs> Isn't it always? Always. <laughs> <laughs> really is. Right. Um, all right. Well, ba let's back up just a little bit. I want to learn about the process of becoming a private investigator. What was that like? It sounds like it took a long time. It did. It was, it's interesting because when I started the process, I know that it's different for every state. Um, the state where I was licensed, California, and a few others, I think New York, New Jersey, some others have really strict requirements. So you cannot just go in and, you know, become a PI. Now, some states don't have stringent licensing requirements, but the way that it works in California is that they do give you credit if you have former law enforcement experience, right? So that's why you see so many people go straight from law enforcement to becoming a PI, but they don't give you credit for almost anything else. So journalism, even though it's a lot of the same skills and they do transfer, they don't give you any credit for that. So you have to spend three years, 6,000 hours working under another investigator. That's how it worked. And that was everything from missing people, um, surveillance, a lot of divorce cases, that kind of stuff, just everything. It taught me a lot. Okay. So you spent a lot of time sort of researching those cases. Was it like a lot of like, uh, internet research was it a lot of like following people. Both. It was a both. lot of both. Obviously everything. If you watch any of these shows about detectives or true crime, as I'm sure you guys know, you'll, you'll see these shows and you're like, they'll be like, beep, bop, boop. And suddenly they find an address. And I'm like, I wish that person existed and worked for me because it really doesn't work like that. Um, things take a long time. Finding people can take a long time. So yeah, a hell of a lot of it is research. But then there's the part of the job that's like being out in the field and winging it. I remember we had a case. There was a woman who said her husband had left her. And my partner and I, she said, I you know, I have no idea where he is. He, he cleaned out the bank account. Um, she was... Hasidic. She was very religious. So was he, she thought. Um, we ended up following him to where he worked, uh, this doctor's office. And afterwards, we watched him change out of his, like, you know, sort of religious attire 
Then we watched him put on these like kind of going out clothes. We follow him to a strip club. My partner's like, okay, one of us has got to go in there and see what's going on. He kind of looked at me and I'm like, okay, fine. You know, all right. So I go in there and I started talking to him and the girls he was talking to found out um, he had all these different prescription pads with different names written on them and all this stuff. And anyway, finally followed him to Trader Joe's where he looked really high and he was buying all this, you know, all this candy and all these chips and things. Oh, and he also got a blowjob from his receptionist. Sorry, I left that part out in the parking lot. So all this, all this happens within about five hours. Finally, we confront the client with the evidence. And I swear to God, the thing she was most upset about, she's like, he had non-kosher tortilla chips. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, you know, lady, we did just tell you about this. So you just never knew what you were going to get. You have to be ready to be in any situation. But then there's a lot of boring downtime too and figuring out like where you're going to use the bathroom and things like that. So, Okay, and you said that part of the job is learning things or, or adapting on the fly. And I was uh, reading this article, I think it's called uh, Chasing Crooks in My Jimmy Choo's, which oh, is yeah. uh, it's a fun article. Um, right. But you have a line in there about how you definitely don't look like the typical private investigator and you describe yourself a little bit, but you have a way of making that work for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How you make, well, you know, yeah. Sure. So, I mean, the way I see it is we've all got realities in any circumstance. You have to kind of make them work for you. So, you know, I'm a female. I don't look like your average PI. In some situations that can be a disadvantage, like when you're talking to law enforcement and you want people to take you seriously. But in other cases, it can be a real advantage. And that's why I think women um, in this profession can do really well because you, no one expects you to be a PI. Um, you can use that to your advantage. I've been on different um, jobs where I would literally, I have to blend into any situation. You can just blend in better. And also, um, even if people know that they're being followed, they're not going to suspect you. They're not going to suspect the woman with the chihuahua. And not only that, it, it's easier to sometimes get information out of people, to talk to people, um, to take pictures because you can pretend it's a selfie, things like that, for example. And just no one thinks anything about people taking pictures anymore, which is pretty great. Good PI. I like that. Okay, cool. So you can even you can do the selfie pose like it's like it's going to get a picture of you, but you can actually be taking a picture like across the street. That's how I do it. I'll take it with <laughs> so all my pictures that I give to clients, 90% of them have me in the foreground, kind of, you know, pretending I'm taking a selfie. Cause <laughs> when you do that, nobody ever no one thinks anything of it. It's great. Right. And you know what's really funny is like you're saying this right now and you're telling people this is a, a technique that you'll use. And later on today, if I see that happen on the street, it won't cross my mind. I it will, won't. I will um, still think people, that that's just somebody taking a selfie. Yeah. Most people are so concerned about what's going on with them that they're just yeah. not looking for that kind of thing. And um, yeah, if you can't blend in, then it's almost like it's better just to make a point of standing out. And that way people won't question it. Right. Because why is if I think that I'm being followed, it's certainly not the person who's like making it obvious that they're there. Yeah. And taking selfies. They're just like, oh, that's some taking, girl taking yeah. selfies. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know. Have you ever been outed? Oh, yeah. Um, only a couple times. Not not yeah. many. Only let's see. Only really once that I can think of right now. And it was really funny because he was a scary guy. And I remember him getting really angry and saying, um, you know, what are you doing following me? And I just started crying. And said, my boyfriend had just broken up with me. I don't know where I was going. Yes. And, you know, either either cry or get mad and be like, like, I'm following you. Like, come on. Um, one or the other. And he actually ended up apologizing. 
And he's like, well, what are you trying to find? I said, and I just lied. I was on the LA freeway. And he's like, well, just follow me. Like you go to this exit. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> he said, I'm getting off that exit too. I'm like, great. All right, well, now I know where you're going. So then I texted my partner and I was like, hey, this is really, I can't follow him anymore. I just got burned, but he is getting off this exit. So he kind of took it from there. It's hilarious. That interaction happened in traffic on the freeway? Yeah, we, we pulled over. I was pulled over at like a, a rest stop thing. And he was like, you're he, he got in my face and it was really scary. But then I just went to the crying and just went right to the cry. And my boyfriend broke up with me and started, and as soon as you start talking about female troubles again, they're out. They don't want to hear anymore. He just immediately is like, yeah, okay. Like, just don't worry about it, lady. You can follow me in the next exit. And that was that. <laughs> right. Wow. What can you, uh, do, sorry, real quick. Do you, do you mind me asking why you were following him? What was the, uh, it was a divorce was case. It's really, oh, okay. it was, it was a divorce case, but even when I did those things, um, I would never want to take a case unless the surveillance was going to, um, accomplish something. I had so many people want me to follow their boyfriends and this and that. And, you know, you'd question them and it's obvious they already know the guy's cheating. And I'm like, I'm not going to waste my time or your money doing that. The only time I would recommend it is when there was something like, um, for example, okay, there was a mom who was not supposed to be drinking or using drugs. She had kind of a shady boyfriend who my client believed was using drugs around the kids, things like that. I have no problem following people because I think that's a good cause. But normally it's just a waste of time and money. You probably already know the answer. It's only when it's really going to give someone closure. And how has um, that private investigator license helped you in uh, being a journalist? The PI license has helped me. It, it's not so much with interviews or anything like that. It's helped me really with things like databases and also knowing what pieces are missing. If I'm looking for information, I'll know that. Um, and I have an appreciation too for PIs who are local. And I can also tell if someone's doing a good job or a bad job, I can kind of, I know how to ask questions. I know how to conduct an investigation. Um, I know what they should be asking, if that makes any sense. Um, it's definitely helped. But I would say the thing that's helped the most is just interviewing a lot of people. That's really the, that's the key, in my opinion. And you mentioned um, it's helped you with uh, databases. I know this isn't exactly a database, but I'm curious to hear you elaborate a little bit on your experience with the uh, dark fetish net that you oh my God. got yourself involved in. That was a crazy one. So I was actually writing a story about um, the former NYPD um, cop who got nicknamed the cannibal cop. Is that what you mean? The article I wrote about that? Okay. So Gil Valley, who later we became friends, which is it's, it's funny how life works, but um what happened was, and I'm not going to get the details exactly right, but he was on a website that had things like cannibalism, fetishes, um, you know, fetishes, people wanted to eat people, people writing these stories about things. Most of it was completely, um, you know, people were just having fantasies and talking about him. Where he got in trouble was, I believe he, at some point, used his, like, in the course of his being a law enforcement officer, he like looked up an address that he wasn't supposed to, but um, that would have normally been a really minor disciplinary matter. But because he, it became found out, you know, that he was doing all this stuff, the case took this really crazy turn. Um, he, I think what, he was put in jail, but then later released and his sentence, um, you know, again, I'm not quite sure he was overturned, probably gonna get that wrong. Anyway, um, he ended up out of jail and um, I, as part of the research into that, got on this dark fetish website and I made a profile 
And, um, you know, I just looked around and saw what people were doing. And um, it was kind of crazy because, look, I mean, I don't judge people at all for any fantasies they want to have, but it was, it was bizarre. I just normally wouldn't have thought of people who like to fantasize about cooking and eating people. And since then, I've become kind of friendly with y'all. I actually introduced him at CrimeCon a couple of years ago. And I, and I made the point that a lot of us out there have, have had some weird internet searches. And would you really want to be put in jail based on your weirdest internet search? We sort of talked about it a little bit. And it's still, you know, I, to each his own as far as fantasies go, as far as I'm concerned. I, yeah, I brought that up because I remember him being... Yeah, kind of a controversial guest at CrimeCon that year. You know, there was people in the camp of like, I can't believe that he was invited here. And then other people. And I think I'm more in this camp where it's like, hey, there's circumstances that people don't know about. There's things like we were just talking earlier, like no one human being is one dimensional. Like you're not yeah. just like, this is it. This is what I do. I've never looked up anything weird and I don't have any dark thoughts or weird thoughts. Like it just happened that the circumstances came together for him in a pretty in a pretty negative way in a pretty bad way well yeah and even though he was cleared ultimately it's still i mean he's not going to do anything in law enforcement in the future probably it's still that thing where if you're ever connected with any headline like that even if you're cleared it's still a problem you're telling me he's not going to get a job in law enforcement with a nickname <laughs> you know. of cannibal cop yeah i don't think so. I, I don't i don't see how you live that down i mean i think he's he's doing well doing other stuff now but um you know it has to be hard and then your children see that and it's you know it's 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 a really I think that freedom of speech is a, you know, one of the most basic things that we have. It's got to be protected. Um, and I've just always believed that. I, I'm very wary of any type of censorship. I think it normally, because then you have to ask yourself, you know, who are we censoring? Who are they going to censor next? It's um can be kind of scary. So, yep. I remember dark fetish on out. Yeah, I remember that. I might still have the profile on there. I can't remember. I haven't been on there in a long time. Any wannabe can be very disappointed in my kitchen, though, because um, I can't even, I mean, I can't even turn the oven on. So it's just way out of my comfort zone. It's okay. You you do everything else right. just well okay. enough. Don't worry about, don't worry yeah. about the, <laughs> the cooking. <laughs> and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Um, all right. Well, tell us about your podcast, Hell and Gone. Well, um, Hell and Gone is, we're now in our, we just finished our fourth season. It's a real-time murder investigation. And I think unlike a lot of other podcasts out there, uh, we it really is kind of real-time. So we'll be doing a different case each season. We do eight full episodes about that case. And during the season, I mean, you know, I'll start working on a case a few months before. So we'll have our first couple of episodes figured out, but we really don't know what's going to happen until we're on the ground. I go to the place where the cases take place. Um, and actually we had, there was an arrest in the case that we covered in season one, which was amazing. Um, I wouldn't say the podcast caused the arrest, but I would definitely say that it, it helped because 
that case was dead in the water. There was nothing happening with it. Um, and that really motivated me to want to do more because I've seen it might not always end the way you want it to, but I've definitely seen the power of what can happen when people come together and try to solve something. Um, so that's what keeps me motivated. And yeah, we're on our fourth season, the Ebby Steppet case, uh, just finished that fourth season and it was probably the craziest case I've ever covered. Did you, uh, go into it knowing that it was going to be the craziest case you've ever covered? No, I went into it knowing it was, it, it there were a lot of factors in play and it was a bizarre case. Um, normally, you know, we haven't covered that many cases that have had that much media attention. Every Sipic's case has had a lot of media attention, but when I started to really dive into it, I learned that uh, so much of the story that had been reported was not correct, just for a lot of reasons. And so I started to think, okay, maybe, you know, we can at least correct all these kind of misconceptions out there, maybe rule some people out, try to move it forward. And then, yeah, I mean, it just got weird. I don't know how much you want me to go into it. It got really weird. Yeah, I would love to, uh, yeah, to to hear a bit more about the case. So Abby Stepik was 18 years old, and in 2015, she went missing. Um, she had, had been, you know, she'd been having a rough time. Um, she had sort of started a new school. She was in that transition period of her life where you're a teenager, maybe you're arguing with your parents. She was living with her mom and her stepdad, and they had basically said to her, listen, you know, if you can't live by our rules you got to move out. So she moved out. She was kind of couch surfing. Um, she went missing and it was on a Sunday. She talked to her brother that day and, and he got this weird phone call where she said, you know, I'm fucked up. I'm messed up. I don't know where I am. Um, she thought she was parked outside of his house. So they're having this conversation. Then she hung up. And after that, a few days later, they found her car at this park, Shalomont Park in West Little Rock. Well, they looked everywhere for her, but um, her body was not found until three years later. And the crazy thing is the body was found just a few feet from her car in the drain pipe right by her car. So the first question is, you know, why didn't police find this? I have a dog barking dog. Hush, Winston. The first question is, why didn't police find the body three years earlier? I mean, it, it, that was the first major thing. Um, and then as I went on, um, Everything that had been reported about the case was sort of talking about Friday night before Ebby went missing. She had all the media reports said she'd been gang raped by four guys at a house party. They had videotaped it. She had been planning to confront those guys. Um, it turned out that wasn't quite the case. What happened was she was at a party, um, really more of a like gathering, some friends hanging out at a house, a few people. And she went there with one male friend. She had consensual sex with someone else who was like a central high school student, um, I think a year younger than her at the time. And she got annoyed afterwards because she thought he had videotaped her without her consent. Um, and so over the weekend, she was texting her male friend saying, hey, like there's a video. And they were sort of texting back and forth. And she said um, she wanted the uh, she wanted the guy she hooked up with's number. Um, he gave it to her. They were they were cooperating. It was cooperative, the whole thing. And um, she's like, look, if you don't if I don't make sure there's no video, basically, I'm going to, I'm going to report, I'm going to go to the cops. Um, so all that, you know, all that happened. Um, and then I found out that the security guard, um, another major part of the story was that the security guard had reported this car missing. Okay. Like from the beginning. And he said he'd been to the park on multiple days. He kept calling the police. They weren't showing up. Then, um, he said he'd seen Ebby at the park with several different guys. Um, 
what was weird about that was that his description kept changing. So once he said the guy was about five foot six, it was a black male, five foot six um, with long dreadlocks, right? And then the next time he said it was someone who was five foot three um, and had short hair. And not only that, he said they were in the backseat of a car. So how does he know the height? There were just some things that were very strange about that. Then I found out that he didn't really, I don't think he did report the car missing because I got the incident report and it was a neighbor who reported the car missing, not the security guard. And then I found out a lot of other stuff about some very troubling, people were calling me telling um, they had really disturbing run-ins with the security guard and his son who patrolled with him. Um, and they ha he has a really disturbing criminal history. Also, he said that uh, he had had, he told the original PI on the case, he had dash cam footage of Evie at the park, but that it had been on his laptop and the laptop stopped working. So he threw it away. He threw the laptop away. And I'm thinking like, really, it's the middle of a missing persons investigation and you throw a laptop away instead of giving it to the police. I mean, that to me seemed unbelievable. So those are just a few of the things that made me, you know, really question what the hell was going on in this case. That, that sounds really normal. I mean, when, when something in my world stops working for a period of time, I pretty much dismiss it immediately, especially if, if it has something important uh, on just, it that has to do with away. my work. Just I mean, someone, you know, as people were saying, oh, well, he's, you know, he's because he's, I think, 70 at the time. It's like, oh, well, he's older and maybe he didn't know. And I said, well, yeah, but he's a security guard. He talks to the police <laughs> all the time. He knows, you know, procedure. The idea that he would delete that seems unbelievable. I mean, throw it away. And not only that, um, in his criminal history, he had worked with some bouncers at this club in Little Rock like 15 years prior to this. And um, there was a case, he was acquitted, but only one out of five guys got charged. It was, it was really strange. Um, what the victim said happened was that this security guard was, um, they were all beating the hell out of him basically. And the security guard was videotaping it, pretended to be a cop and then later destroyed the videotaped evidence. So that to me, all these things led me to think the police need to question this guy again and his son. Um, there's a lot of things that don't match up that are inconsistencies, things he said publicly. Not, this is not just me, that you can look at them and see their inconsistencies. But the police just aren't doing anything. They told me that, uh, well, he had, to have passed a back, he had to have passed a background check to be a security guard. That was their response to all that. And you said wow. that there were some disturbing run-ins between uh, him and his son? Um, yeah, so what this person told me who lived in the area was that he and his son would overreact to, you know, they would act like cops. They would overreact. They would escalate situations. She gave me an example. She said her son and just, I think was, he was in college. He had a job at one of the pools. It's this, it's this neighborhood. There are about 30 different little neighborhoods there. And they have these, you know, it's a nice, pretty affluent neighborhood. And there's a swimming pool there. Well, anyway, she told me her son was uh, working at that pool. And, you know, one night he decided to take some friends in there without permission, open up the pool, they're swimming. I mean, as we've all, you know, a lot of people have done a million times. And, you know, he knew he wasn't supposed to be doing that, but they weren't drinking or anything. They were just like kids hanging out by a pool. So according to this mom, what happened was uh, this, this security guard showed up with his son and they made them get on their, they, they were like, get down on your knees. They make him get on their knees. They tried to handcuff them. They told him, you know, we could have blown your head off right there. It was just really, I mean, to me, just a total overreaction. And that, I mean, that's not the first story I've heard like that about them. So that made me think, 
you know, was Abby there in an altered, you know, she was in an altered state. She obviously had taken something, maybe even not known she took it. And, you know, did they have some sort of run in with her? I mean, I don't know. I keep thinking about that. You said the security guard was around 80? 70. 70. Yeah. Okay. He had a son. And, and right, right. Was there any connection to the men at the party? No, there's so that, so the guys at the party live in a completely different part of Little Rock and my theory, and look, I, you know, I, I don't know, I'm open-minded, always willing to change my mind. But as I went further along with the case, that happened on Friday night. We know she hung out with other people on Saturday night and other people on Saturday day. Um, there's a window of time that we don't have on Sunday accounted for. Now, you know, to me, once the body was found, the whole investigation should have changed track because now you have also, I mean, for this investigation, I crawled down in the 13 inch wide manhole um, multiple times because I needed to see where the body was found. And, and I should explain really clearly, the car was backed into a, to this parking space. And then you have this storm drain, you have a manhole cover and then you've got a gutter. Okay. There's a storm drain. That's, you know, I don't know if you like, it's pretty roomy, but then at the bottom of the storm drain, one that you can't see from the top, you have this 13 inch wide concrete pipe. And that is where her body was found. So, and we also know that her, her dad, five days after she went missing, her dad and her stepbrother opened up the manhole cover, looked in there with a neighbor. She, her body wasn't there. So that means it was in the pipe from the beginning. And the only way that it could have gotten in that pipe is someone to put it there because there's no, it, there's no other way you can end up in that pipe. You can't crawl in there. I mean, I tried it, your arms, you can just about get in, but, but no one would ever do that. It's, that would be insane. That would be, I just don't believe for a second she ever would have done that. And you said it's 13 inches in diameter? Mm -hmm. 13 inches in diameter. I can fit in. My partner had my heels. I could fit in if I, like, so Abby was 5'1", about 110 pounds. She's really small. I'm like 5'11", and 128 pounds. So she was smaller than me, but it's like kind of a comparable circumference. So I put my arms all the way out and um, I can go all the way in like that, but he has to pull me out. By the way, I was hyperventilating and really scared. There's no way she would have done that. This was, I mean, she was in her car. She was safe. She had all her stuff with her. She had her cell phone and you couldn't, you can't, again, like you have to lift the heavy manhole cover off and then you have to look down and, and you can't see that hole. You, you have to know it's there, not even in broad daylight and yeah. so cold silver. I mean, even if she was like trying to hide from somebody, just going into the manhole area itself should have been good enough. You know what I mean? That would like have been good was... enough. And I don't even think she would have done that. I don't think she could yeah. have lifted that cover. It's super heavy because the cover was shut. So then she'd have to have gone down a manhole <laughs> and while balancing on a ladder, close it on top of herself, you know, or like, I guess, slide down the gutter. But that would have probably broken some bones. Um, so, yeah, I... I and also she, everyone says about this girl, this was a girl who really cared about having perfect hair, perfect makeup, her outfits always on point. I mean, the idea she's going to slide down in a dirty, it just doesn't make any sense. Just doesn't make how, any sense. How was the two questions? How was the pipe extracted from that area? And what position was she in? How did they get her out of the pipe? What position well, what did they know what was, position she was in? Uh, I don't know whether, which way she was facing, but I do know she was in, I believe, arms forward like Superman all the way straight. Um, so the way that it, they found her was that um, 
it was, you know, three years of the investigation, another investigator had taken over. They're kind of relooking, they're, they're redoing everything or trying to look at the evidence. Um, and what's so tragic too, by the way, is that a few weeks after she went missing, a, a friend of hers who I talked to went to that park, smelled decomposition in the drain, called the police and the police came and they were so dismissive. They're like, well, we've had dogs out here. They would have caught it. That's just, you know, sewage or that's just a dead animal or something like that. Um, I mean, it was almost certainly her because um, anyway, the police went out, they sent robots up the pipes at both ends um, and, and the robots went in and found a blockage about 70, 100, 70 to 100 feet into the pipe by that point, because it's been three years. The remains had had time to travel down and they excavated the whole pipe and that's when they found her body. So um, like I say, I mean, I really thought at that point, I remember seeing that on the news and thinking, okay, well, now they found the body and maybe now they'll figure something out and the, you know, these people can get some answers. Um, unfortunately that didn't happen. And like I said, the reason I say, I think the whole investigation should have changed is because now you're dealing with someone who had to really know that park. Well, they had to know that pipe was down there and they also had to know the way that her car was backed in, by the way, it was backed in perfectly. Okay. And that also makes me think would a girl who was in that state really back it in perfectly. I don't know, but it's backed in perfectly. And it was in a spot where you couldn't see it from the street. Um, and, but it was, if you wanted to do something back there, the car would hide whatever you were doing. So it was like the ideal spot. If you want to drop something in a manhole, there was also a towel or this towel sticking out of the passenger door side. You know, it looked, it looked like someone had taken a body and like slid it down. That's what it was. That's what the scene looked like to me. But um, I don't know if the police, I don't know if they think that, I don't know. I don't know. What is the official investigation like? Did, did you have any contact with them? Yeah, I've talked to, so I talked to Tommy Hudson, who was the investigator who took over. He's the one who found Abby's body. Um, he, I mean, you know, he's, he's definitely open to hearing things and he was helpful as he's as helpful as he can be, but also the protocol is it's not his investigation anymore. You know, um, the new detective Bruce Maxwell, we did talk to, I have seen emails that he sent to Abby's mom, Laurie saying what well, was so bizarre. Okay. Another weird thing. First, he said, listen, we had the timeline wrong. We thought we knew where she was Friday and Saturday night. It turns out we don't know where she was Saturday night, but in, in not so many words. So, you know, we have the timeline. It's, it's off. Okay. So then after that, I was thinking, okay, now maybe they'll say, let's re-interview everybody. That's not what happened. What happened was a few weeks later, he emailed her again and, and pretty much said, I've done all I can do with this case. Uh, we've done all we can do. And, you know, the only thing I can think of is that she must have crawled down there herself. Like that was the conclusion, which to me was totally bizarre. I don't know where he logically got from. I, I, I don't know. I'd like to explore this pipe a little bit more. Was this something that it's a drainage pipe, right? So is it, is it going like north, south? Or is it on an angle or is it more? It's a little bit, it's not steep. It does travel down. It travels down and I'm really bad with directions. Travels down, it goes about 150 feet, I guess. Um, and, and it pours out in like this little ditch, um, just like a little ditch that's by this subdivision of homes. Yeah, it's just a drainage pipe. I've talked to a lot of experts. I know it's, it's not hard to, to, you know, answer the question of how her body got from where it was put in the pipe to the other part, because that's like time, 
the remains decaying, you know, pressure. Also, there was a lot of rain. A lot of people bring that up, but the rain didn't happen until after she went missing, like a, a couple weeks after, I think that week there was like an inch of rain, you know what I mean? Not, not anything that would have put her body that would have moved her body into the drain pipe. That wouldn't have happened based on an inch of rain. It would have taken a tremendous amount to like suck it in with that force. So I really believe she had to be there from the beginning. That's, that's the hard part to answer. How did she get from, even if someone did toss her into that, you know, um, storm drain, how did she get into that pipe? And I really think someone put her in there. They knew it was there. Um, it was, I think probably a panic decision, um, to buy some time or whatever. And then you got to ask yourself like who would be motivated because even if she was ODing and she was doing drugs with people, I mean, the people would have just left. They wouldn't stay, especially her friends, like you're in a part of town they're not, you know, that familiar with. I just don't buy that they would have stayed there and then known to put a body in that drain pipe. Also, I mean, her money and her stuff and a small amount of pot, those things were all still in the car. You know, if that had had anything to do, if it was a drug deal, they just would have taken all that stuff, I think. And they found the body that far into the pipe because it had decomposed over the course of two years and it slowly, right. gradually slipped down. Right. It was near the front of the pipe in the beginning because when the friend reported it, I believe that was November 5th. So that, so she went missing on October 25th is when she went missing. Um, October 30th is when the dad, I'm sorry, the stepfather, the brother, and then some other people looked, lifted the manhole cover, looked, there was nobody there. So like she was in the pipe and probably pretty near the entrance. And then I've also had other law enforcement people who were working the scene. I've had them reach out to me and say, yeah, like we wanted to take a look in the pipe and kind of were told not to. So she was near the opening of the, the near the sort of opening and then where the, where her car was parked. And then she eventually made her way. The remains made their way further down. Yeah. Who told them not to? I mean, the guy was working the case at the time. Oh, so superior, like their superiors told them not to. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and it was that it was so dumb because it's this thing where, look, we all make mistakes every single day. I've made many, but you know, it's important to be able to say, listen, hey, we made a mistake. We should go back and check this again instead of what they seem to do so often. And Tommy Hudson, to his credit, did that. But so many people in law enforcement seem to just double down. You know, it's like, nope, we've done that. We're just and they spend more time arguing about stuff and covering it up. than if they just look, just go look. Um, and it's still happening. I mean, I'm still arguing with a detective about and, and poor Lori is about, uh, you know, oh, well, we've already checked him out. He's had a background check. Well, don't you want to go back and check again? I mean, obviously you missed something because otherwise the case would otherwise the case would be solved. Exactly. What what harm is it? What harm? I don't know. I don't know why they. I don't know why sometimes I feel there's this weird belligerent attitude. I really don't understand it. Yeah. Um, but I've seen it over and over. So. Yeah. So, sometimes there's an animosity towards uh, media or even you know podcasters. We felt it at times. What? Yeah, I'm sure you. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had anyone tell you though, I had an Arkansas state police, you know, person call me to his office. It's also shady, but anyway, and then ber totally berate me. And the last thing he said to me was, you know, investigations are grown up stuff. And, you know, you just need to basically told me to stay in my lane and mind my own business. So yeah, he really motivated me to continue the case at that point, because <laughs> I was a little bit, I was a little thinking it might be too much. And then after he told me that, I just thought, no, this is not right. It's, this is not what should be happening. See, I think it's because they're threatened. They they probably do like a very, uh, you know, right right away you can see your credentials. 
you know, if they did any search on you, you can see your credentials and they're probably threatened by that. And they're like, then they have to insult you and, and tell you it's grown up work and tell you to go away. But they don't understand what they're dealing with. Well, I mean, it's and look, there are a lot of really good cops out there and people who work in law enforcement. Um, the investigator, our first season when I did the Rebecca Gould case. Um, the, and this guy ended up getting an arrest in like eight months. I still don't think it's over because I think there's one more killer out there who needs to be arrested also. But he, he, you know, he called me on the second day or something. And he was like, hey, can I get your interviews? All of your interviews I hear you've got. And I said, sure, of course, please take him. Even if even if he ultimately didn't end up using him, wouldn't you want to have all the information you can if you're a cold case investigator? That's what I've never understood. Surely you'd want information. You wouldn't be coming up with reasons to tell people why they're wrong. Everyone who comes in. Well, especially if the information's there, because typically in the cold cases, you hear that it's been lost in a flood or, you know, the elements <laughs> gutted or a fire. Like they always store evidence in the basement of like a leaky building. Yeah, that is true. That does happen. Well, in Ebby's case, uh, according to her parents, you know, they didn't really process the car because um, at first because, you know, they're thinking she's a runaway. Um, which happens, which is so tragic when these when people get labeled runaways. Um, but anyway, uh, they gave him the car back and they had apparently in the heavy rain left the trunk open overnight. So I think some stuff got destroyed that way, too. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So in your experience, was there any way that Ebby could have got gotten into that place herself, like, and, and reasonably hope to get out? Like, you know, no. I know you had mentioned the manhole cover, you know, no. would she have been able to push that out had she gotten into that position and then brought the cover over? Well, the manhole cover, so you have to go down a ladder. The, the small pipe is at the very bottom. So you'd have to, I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you could. I'm just saying, I mean, theoretically, although it's, it, it's, I did it. It's really hard and it's hard at my height to do it because the ladder, the rungs on the ladder are really far apart. I don't know if someone that height could have done it. I have really long reach and that's the only reason I was able to do it from in there. Um, but also you can't see anything. I mean, I just think about how implausible it is to me that someone would be, let's say she's in the manhole for whatever reason, she pulled the cover over or fallen down the gutter. And then you can't even see the pipe. You can't see it. I mean, how would she, then she's going to feel around in the dark because it was already getting dark. And then for some other unbeknown reason, you know, reason unbeknownst to me, just like start crawling in a 13 inch wide pipe where you, you know, getting stuck, but continuing to stuff herself further in there. All of this while she's, you know, kind of wasted. I just, I don't, I don't see it. 
I don't think she ever would have done anything like that. It's totally out of character. And, you know, I think she would have just stayed in her car or this is like the kind of area where there are houses and things around. And there's also like little wooded, you know, it's, it's a park with little picnic tables and, and trees. So if she wanted to run or go somewhere else, you just go and like hide behind a tree. You don't have to, that whole thing just never made any sense to me. I think it was someone trying to dump a body. I don't think it was her going down there herself. Yeah. And when you were in this uh, pipe, it exits at, uh, you know, a, a, a couple hundred feet, right? It exits yeah, right. into like you this can't ditch get, but I, I couldn't go. I couldn't even, I couldn't go farther than, you know, I couldn't go farther than a few feet in because it starts turning. So there's yeah, no so way. So you can't see a light or anything, right? Like you oh, can't no, see a light. No, no. This is hundred. I mean, this is, I'll yeah. send you a video I have. Um, I went in there for Dr. Phil too. I went in there because I was like, I'm determined to show everyone that there's no way, there's just no way she could have gotten down there herself. No, you can't see anything. And, and you can't, again, you can't even see. I mean, if you, if you could see how small that hole is, there's just absolutely no reason why she would have gone down there. Well, great work on, on the case and on your podcast, Helen Gone. Tell Thanks. us about your new podcast. I'm really excited. Well, I've been covering red collar crime for a long time. Um, I had a podcast on another network um, covering red collar crime. And so this is Red Collar Diaries. It's it's not an active investigation. It's it's every week we do a synopsis of a different case. Um, but I do everything through the lens of really following the money and also understanding um, red collar is not my term. It's, it's um, a term. It's called fraud detection homicide. It's basically the idea that, you know, we think of white collar criminals as these really um, we think of like the nerdy accountant. Yeah, they commit financial fraud, but they don't really get violent. That's that's something different but it's not really different. It's the same mentality. And when there's a lot of money involved, people will do almost anything. So these, these are cases where fraud escalates to murder. So I love it because it combines con, it combines con artists and murder. And that's like two of my biggest, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with those cases. Um, I'm also, one of the first ones I'm doing is the Murdoch case because, um, you know, I see stuff about it on the news all the time, but I really wanted to help people understand why I believe, I believe, you know, Alec Murdoch is responsible um, for killing his wife because in some way, because you got to follow the money and see who's going to profit. And there's all this weird stuff going on in the background, that whole case, that could be a whole, that could be a movie, a podcast series, you know, that could go on forever. What is it about the subject matter, con artists and murder that make that your two favorite that make those your two favorite things? I don't know. I think, um, I think it's because on one level, I think the reason people are fascinated with con artists is because they admire them in some ways, because these are people who are, first of all, society rewards a lot of the kind of sociopathic, psychopathic behavior. You look at some CEOs, you know, so I think, I think people are fascinated by it. Maybe in some ways, um, you know, when I, when I'll, when I'll watch a movie, like catch me if you can, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, you're thinking like, that'd be, that'd be fun, you know, to pretend to do all those things. But then you look at the dark side and you realize it's really horrific. I mean, there are cases where, you know, someone who people have been friends for 50 years, people who are business partners murder each other. I think it's also fascinating because the fraud's everywhere. I mean, um, I said it in the trailer, this is the age of the scammer. It's everywhere. And, um, so many elderly people are getting targeted, um, murdered and, you know, defrauded. It's just everywhere. So that's why I'm, 
I'm obsessed with it because I think I can spot it. And a lot of people can't. And I'm sometimes even if I do warn them, they don't listen, but I would like to be able to tell people if, if people can see the pattern, maybe then they'll be able to see some of these red flags. We were just talking about this. Like there just seems to be this wave of media that is showcasing con artists. Maybe it's always been there. I'm just like, we're noticing it more because there's more ways to watch things. And, you know, Netflix comes out with one thing and then Hulu has to come out with their version of it. And what's your opinion on this? Because I'm really considering doing this. Just saying that you did a bunch of shit. Just saying that you're successful. Or like, oh, just saying you've done. Just, yeah. Like if we want to be PIs. Like, yeah, yeah. We're, no, we have our PI license. Sure. We did 6,000 hours in uh, California. That's the crazy thing is, um, I, I see this all the time with like white collar, red collar. Look at, um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Theranos. I mean, look at the, look yeah. at that. I mean, she like literally, I mean, she was saying this crazy stuff and it seems like people are just willing to believe things almost the more outrageous they are. You know, I'm not just going to say I'm a college graduate. I'm going to say I graduated from Harvard you know, and then I've got $20 million in the bank and stuff. And it's just like, it's just kind of fascinating. Um, the mentality of someone and how they'll, you know, and then if they get called out on it, they're like, well, everyone says fake it till you make it. Right. You know, and it's right. Like, but, but not to, I mean, to a point. Right. I right. Mean, so where is the line? And I'm really happy that uh, this opportunity has presented itself to ask a question to someone like yourself, because I've, I've been wanting to ask this, where does it, where does where is the line between um, somebody doing that as a con artist and then someone saying, well, that's just how business is done. And I feel like I feel like a man could say that and someone could say, oh, that's just how that's just how business is done. Like he's just being a, a businessman. But a woman would do something similar. And it's like she's deceptive and she's she's running a con. Like if a man was doing Theranos, it would not have turned it like it might have. But it would have been, it, it would have been different. I think it still would have been bad. I mean, look at fire festival, <laughs> you know, I, you're right. You're right. That actually flashed in my mind when I said that. Yeah. I think it was just unusual because a female getting to that position is maybe more unusual, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, tons of female male con artists. I think the line has to be, if you're lying about something, like if you're lying about being a licensed professional, when you're not, that's really bad. Um, or uh, I think it's like online dating, right? Okay. So if you're doing online dating, which sadly I do, um, you, you look at these, it's like, okay, it's ethical, I think, to put a picture of yourself that puts you in the best light, okay? Maybe you put a filter on there. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, put you in your, in your best light. It's a little unethical to put a picture of you 10 years ago or, um, you know, looking way different or, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, there's there's filters, there's, or, or like, okay, exaggerating things on your resume. You can exaggerate your business accomplishments, but not say you went to Harvard if you didn't. Things like that. Yeah, there's something weird about the brazenness of con lies that we're, we've been trying to kind of isolate. It's like, it's like if you say you went to Bunker Hill versus Harvard, like, uh, like what, if, if you say Harvard, like people are more likely to believe you in a weird way. I, I yeah, don't, you know true. what I mean? It's yeah. true. Um, well, like I said, the more brazen the lies, I mean, look at, you know, these people who are, I mean, Bernie made off the 20, 20% every month return. Okay. You got to know that's too good to be true. Um, and I would say, I think the best thing people can do, everyone's like, Oh, give them the benefit of the doubt. And I don't believe in that. I, I believe in trust, but verify. So don't be suspicious of people, but just check out to see if their story makes sense. 
Um, these things aren't that hard to verify. And if you find out that someone's lying about things, you know, that's just a really bad sign for anything, for business involvement or personal involvement. To me, it's just pretty, like, it's pretty unforgivable, those things, because, you know, it's, it's just a basic component of who people are. But the, the people that I'm talking about, I mean, they, some of these frauds are just like unbelievable. And, um, you know, before you know it, you trust the wrong person. And I, I just did one about a preacher's wife who was decapitated and dismembered by this woman. Um, she thought she's just helping her out. And, you know, within a few weeks, the bank accounts drained and, you know, and it's funny, like we laugh about stories about con artists, but it's all fun. And, you know, we're kind of talking about it. People kind of laugh. And then you think about what they really do. I mean, think about the investors who lose their whole life savings or people who get, I've got a friend who was living with a con artist for a year. And I mean, she's, she's nothing left. It's, it's really, I mean, they're real victims. If they'll steal your identity and lie to you to your face, like what else are they going to do? I mean, if, of course they could murder you. I'm not trying to say they all will, but I just don't understand why people think violence is separate from con artistry. Right, right. Good, good point. So where is that line then? Like, is there something you've identified between white collar that stays white collar and doesn't get violent um, before it gets to red collar? Well, yeah, usually a lot of the personality traits of people who commit uh, white collar and red collar crime are the same. The, di- the, the deal is with, with fraud detection homicide, it's people who get to a point where their fraud is going to be discovered. They know it's going to be discovered. It's kind of like the house of cards is tumbling down. Um, maybe it's, it's, you know, and usually it's the people closest to them who discover it. Usually it's close friends, family. Um, sometimes it will be a business partner, but it's not always the, the fraud victim either, by the way. Sometimes it's just someone who they think might reveal it and they will. And often these people have never been violent before and, and people make a fundamental mistake. They think, oh, well, they've never been violent before. They don't have it in them. That's not true. They do have it in them. They've got the same narcissistic personality traits that make them commit fraud, They've just never had to before because they've been able to deal with their problem, like by defrauding people or deflecting. They're not like a serial killer who's driven to kill, but if they've got a problem and the way to solve it is murder, they'll do it. That's, it's kind of more like that. Um, there are definitely red, uh, the red flags are more, you know, you don't know when white collar crime is going to turn into red collar crime. So you really have to protect yourself. Um, one of the things I, I always say is I always tell women who are in a, a relationship that's volatile never go back for your stuff. Because if you go back for your stuff, you're putting yourself alone with this person who's maybe abused you. And I'm always telling people that. And it's the same with red collar. It's if you're in a business relationship with somebody and you, you know, maybe they owe you money and, and they suggest you meet up at the office to discuss it, you know, after work, don't do it. Just meet them somewhere public. So if you guys get into a dispute, don't. <laughs> yeah. just, just I'm never I'm saying, meeting I mean, Lance again. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced now he's going to try to kill me. I mean, he probably won't just because it'd be a real, I mean, it'd be kind no. of involved now. No, no, he's definitely going to try to kill me. I'll probably try, but um, <laughs> perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, you can provide some um, instructions to Tim on how to defend himself by teaching him the ways of um, Bartitsu. Oh, Bartitsu. That was so funny. I had a I, I had such a kick out of so going fun. over your old articles. That was so fun. I did an article in the Atlantic about Bartitsu, which is like a old school style of like gentleman street fighting um, that that Sherlock Holmes used in. Um, they used it in a Sherlock Holmes movie, and Sherlock Holmes apparently did it. And it involves a lot of moves with umbrellas. 
and it's just kind of bananas and it was really fun and I learned it in a Burbank park and it was just it was really fun I think about it sometimes whenever it's raining um, an umbrella is a very underrated combat tool I'm a bit of a Gene Kelly so I feel like I could really uh, use that pretty well to my advantage there you go see <laughs> you just dance your way out of the situation <laughs> yeah I'll just confuse them yeah I love wow. it <laughs> well Catherine thank you so much for uh, for hanging out with us today and uh, telling us about your career and about your shows we really appreciate it I really appreciate it listen I love being here anytime I will you know if there's anything I can help with if you encounter a situation where you're seeing red flags you know give me a call yeah for sure thank you appreciate that good work on everything thank you we'll talk to you soon see you Winston Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.